I was basically told, go get a Security Council resolution. We invited the whole of the Security Council to the church center, and we met with them in the basement. You know, at the time, I think they were so surprised with the idea of women coming forward, they just couldn't say no. From the Oslo Forum, welcome to the Mediator Studio, a podcast about peacemakers, bringing you stories from behind the scenes. I'm your host, Adam Cooper. My guest today chased a foreign minister down a corridor in the UN to secure a groundbreaking resolution on women in conflict, and she learned some invaluable lessons from a Gucci-clad gang leader in Jamaica. Sanam Naragi Andalini, founder and CEO of the International Civil Society Action Network and director of the Centre for Women, Peace and Security at the London School of Economics, welcome to the Mediator Studio. Thank you. Lovely to be with you. It's great to have you here. I'd like to take you back to Iran to start with, where you were born, and a life-changing moment in December 1978 with the revolution as its backdrop. What happened? I went from having probably the, one of the most magical childhoods imaginable to getting on a plane on December 1978. We had my sister, myself, and my uncle. I had a suitcase full of skiing clothes and my homework, contingency homework that our school had given because it was closed because of the demonstrations. We left for 10 days and that was the end of my life. Uh, or at least at the end of my life as I knew it, because I didn't go back for another seven years, and I've never lived in Iran uh, really since then. So you were forced to flee the country. But if I understand correctly, your family obviously were deeply rooted there and had played a prominent role in political and civic life. How did that background shape your motivations and values? It shapes and informs my values almost every day, I think. From my father's side, I come from a line of actually very prominent religious leaders and intellectuals and philosophers and mathematicians. And from my mother's side, there were politicians. My grandfather was a prominent figure in the previous regime before the Pahlavis. And essentially, the message that I grew up with was that with privilege comes responsibility. And so, uh, and around me, I saw this, you know, growing up and, and as I entered adulthood, that one of my aunts had been the founder of social work in Iran, another aunt had actually brought back the whole question of disability and dealing with prosthetics and the disabled community. So I'd seen this around me. I grew up with very, very strong women on both sides of the family. Nobody ever questioned the role of women, but it was always infused with a deep sense of, as I say, with power and privilege comes responsibility. Because there was an awareness that politics was risky, of course. Yes. On my mother's side, my eldest uncle was actually assassinated by Reza Shah, last Shah's father. So my grandfather's message to all of his children, and there were 36 of them, was not to go into politics. Well, it doesn't sound like you quite heeded your grandfather's advice because the work you've done has been deeply political in many ways, if not in formal politics itself. I mean, is it fair to say that your childhood framed the questions and the issues that you would work on later in mediation and conflict? Oh, absolutely. I think that what happened, I was always interested in journalism, but I think that what happened over the years was that, number one, I realized that my grandfather's message came from a good place, but it didn't quite work because regardless of whether we stepped out of politics, politics always had something to do with us. So any whether it's in Iran because of the family's background, or now living in America, you know, I, it would be lovely to think that I could just be 
normal, you know, like everybody else. But as Iranians, we're dealing with sanctions, we're dealing with the Muslim ban, we're dealing with the possibility of war. So politics always has something to do with you. I think what mattered to me when I was in my 20s was that I realized the revolution that for most people who weren't Iranian was an event in history was for me a living event because each decade of my life I felt it in a different way. When I was getting married, when I was 26, we couldn't get visas for people to come to the wedding in London. When I was in my 40s, a lot of my relatives, my uncles and aunts were elderly and passing, you know, getting sick and dying. And my mother couldn't go back to Iran to be with her eldest brother, for example. So that moment, you know, it's not just one moment, it continues through your life. And I, maybe naively, wanted to help other countries and other people avoid going through the trauma that we did. I wanted to work on something to say, how do you get your country going from a dictatorship to a democracy without having to go through some massive rupture and war or this kind of fissure that affects generation after generation? And I was inspired by South Africa and what happened there with the transition and the transformation. You know, and you talk about that slightly surreal experience of watching your own home country on television in the UK. And later on, you do end up actually being a journalist in a newsroom and you're unfolding or you're watching the events of the mid 90s unfold in a newsroom in CNN, I understand. And you see two images which kind of propel you forward into action. Describe to us that that moment. That's right. I was uh, interning, you know, I wasn't being paid. I was I was interning at, at, at CNN in London and there were television screens in the newsroom and I just remember these two images. One was of Nelson Mandela becoming president and the celebrations in South Africa. And the other one was of a distant camera that was zooming in on slightly blurry images of men with machetes attacking other people. And that was Rwanda. It was the Rwandan genocide. There was a moment, again, I was very young, but it was a moment in my head where I was thinking, how is it possible to have a camera actually documenting this event and yet no one's stopping it. And that was a moment where I went from thinking about wanting to be a journalist as an observer and the importance of being an observer to the events to saying, well, how do you actually stop it? How do you get in and prevent these things happening? And you end up trying to do exactly that, work on these issues and go beyond just observing them at an NGO called International Alert, which works on these conflict issues. And in 1998, you're helping out organizing a conference in London on women in conflict. Tell us about your involvement in that conference, because it sounds like it was a very important turning point for you. It was. So I joined Alert, and Alert was a really vibrant place at the time. But by 1998, I was already disillusioned with the way things were being done, because the assumption was that if we know enough in advance of a problem arising in a country, People will care and they'll intervene and they'll, they'll try and stop it sliding into violence. But I realized that that's not really how it works. You know, we had a colleague who came from the DRC from Congo and, and he said in six weeks time, the war is going to start in my country. And he went away and he, and he was right. There are these moments where I, I kind of realized that, okay, we say things in theory, but in practice, it's a different story. And in 1998, we hosted, co-hosted with King's College London, probably the first and biggest meeting of women from war zones around the world. I think there were about 50 women from, from different war zones around the world. And it was a really extraordinary experience because 
all of a sudden from Guatemala to Afghanistan to Israel to Rwanda, these women were coming and their stories on the one hand were different because of the context, but their reality of being women in the middle of that and what they were trying to do to stop it. There was a Rwandan woman who spoke about the need for reconciliation. This is 1998, four years after the genocide. And I realized she'd lost a hundred relatives in the genocide. And that was one moment for me where I thought, I'm not sure that I would be able to have the strength to do what she's done if that had happened to my family, to be able to look forward and think about the future and reconciliation and forgiveness and so forth. And then at the same time, I met Tandi Modise, who was a former MK from the anti-apartheid movement. She had been known as the knitting needle bomber in South Africa and had transitioned from that. She'd gone to jail and then she'd end up being the chair of the Joint Defense Committee in the South African Parliament at the end of apartheid. And she told us the story of how she mobilized and led an effort to change the way national security is thought about in South Africa. It really was a moment where I thought, these are the people that are doing the work. This is who I want to support and advocate for because they're practical, they get it done, they have a vision, and they have their feet on the ground. And then you try to do exactly that, elevate the voices of these incredible women at the UN through a resolution at the Security Council 1325 on the inclusion of women in peacemaking, which was a real landmark moment. Tell us about your role in making that happen. That conference was a really pivotal moment because as we sat with these women, we realized there is no vocabulary for us to talk about the totality of this experience. And we decided with my colleagues at Alert that we would have a campaign called Women Building Peace from the Village Council to the Negotiating Table. And amongst the various things that the campaign would do, it would have a policy pillar. And the policy pillar had the goal of getting a Security Council resolution, an EU parliamentary resolution, and an OSCE resolution. And I was basically told, go get a Security Council resolution. No big deal, right? <laughs> Honestly, I, th I think that helped to not know what it actually meant. And were they receptive, these governments that you were hounding around the UN trying to make the case <laughs> for this resolution? I think what helped was that for me, the messaging of saying women build peace, we were going in with this incredibly powerful, positive message. It wasn't just saying, oh, wars happen and terrible things happen to women because wars happen and terrible things happen to everybody. I wanted to say wars happen, the wars have changed. We have civil wars now. You, the Security Council, are actually slightly restricted in how you can engage in civil wars because you're not meant to intervene because of you know sovereignty issues that in terms of the UN Charter. So, hey, look at who can help and look at who's doing the work on the ground. So it was coming in with this positive message. Yeah, so women um, that, kind of as an asset to peacemaking. Exactly, exactly. And, and so that, I think, made a difference. So it was a very constructive way of engaging them. We invited the whole of the Security Council to the church center, which is across the UN building. It's a you know, NGO building, basically. And we met with them in the basement. You know, at the time, I think they were so surprised with the idea of women coming forward, they just couldn't say no. So maybe that's also, it was like double-edged sword, <laughs> you know, it's like, they, they probably thought we were slightly crazy. But, you know, I chased the, the Namibian foreign minister out of, well, chased, he, he left the conference room in the UN and I scuttled afterwards and he was sitting in the Vienna cafe and I just went up to him and said, excuse me, may I, may I have a chat with you? You know, it was kind of a, yeah, I was young and brave and stupid and... I had a job to get done. And, and well, so, so thank that goodness. <laughs> thank, thank goodness for your bravery, Sanam, because you end up getting the resolution, you and your colleagues who worked on it. 
And then, you know, you spend the next 20 years trying to put that into practice. And, you know, from early on, you, you know, gender can be reduced to just women's issues, but you focused on those men's attitudes as well, whether it's the Namibian foreign minister or conflict parties in the field. And in the early 2000s, you're commissioned by the UN to write a 10 nation study on this topic. And you end up in the back streets of Kingston in Jamaica interviewing gang leaders. So tell us about what happened there. Once we got the resolution, I remember somebody on the board of International Alert said, okay, so now what happens? And I said, well, we got the resolution. Now the governments have to get on and do it. And of course you realize that's not how it works. Then came the sort of yeah, mid to late 90, uh, 2000s. And at UNDP, we were talking about community social cohesion. And they asked me to come and do a study for them on violent masculinity. You know, why is it, you know, these, these young men are violent. And I actually was, I found that a little bit offensive because for me, what I was interested in was to say, we know what happens to women in wars and we know all the different things that go on with women by this point, but we've never really told the story of men. And we need to understand what is it that makes a young man join a militia or a gang, or we were looking at what happens to gang membership. I was in Jamaica and we went into one community area with a local community, youth community leader, and he'd set up a meeting. And these men started to arrive. And first it was one, two, three, four. I think by the end of it, as we started the conversation, there were about 40 guys surrounding us. Some of them didn't have shirts on. I could see the bullet wounds and various kind of war wounds that they had. They had their spliffs. They were smoking their joints. Their little kids came and sat on their laps. And I started having a conversation with them about what are you aspiring to and you know how do you understand violence and so forth. But as we started talking, it became clear that there was one chap who was really like in charge, he had his Gucci man belt and his Gucci hat and he had a diamante earring and he had brand new sneakers. One of the chaps said to me, I said to them, what do you aspire to? And you know, you have children, what do you want for your children? And he said, I want my children to have good table manners, to speak well and go to school and have good lives. And I suddenly, I looked at him and I said, that's the same as me. And, and it, it's this moment of humanity and humility and also slight awe that you think, I actually have something in common with a gang member in <laughs> Kingstown, Jamaica. But they also wanted to know, you know, having sat down with you, having shared their views, kind of where would this all lead? Like what would be, what was the point of the conversation in a sense? What I struggle with is that even when we promise that I'm going to come back or you will have this report or I will do something, you know, I will take your message forward and, and make sure that it's heard. I feel as if we let people down. I think it's so important to have rooted local organizations that can take things through from beginning to end. And it, and it makes such a difference when you have that. I want to move from the back streets of Jamaica to Somalia, where you also have conversations about the importance of families. Tell me more about that. So in the case of Somalia, for example, I was there again looking at the question of young men getting involved in violence. And, and one of these gentlemen turns around to me and he said, you know, gender-based violence is our core business. The idea that the community elders were telling me that their concern for the well-being of their community in terms of the security and well-being is actually gender-based violence was really interesting because so often we're, you know, the assumption is that this is the niche area for women's rights organizations and, you know, culturally nobody else wants to talk about it. What I found is that no, men, men at a local level, people do care and the elders do care about seeing their own sort of constituencies and structures disintegrate from within. 
And do you think that mediators care enough that they listen to those voices in terms of defining what's on the agenda for peace talks? <laughs> That's a very good question. I wonder whether mediators even ask the questions. Very often we're told that, you know, mediator, you start from where the parties are and slowly take them forward and so forth. I actually think that when you're living in the midst of a crisis and your country's gone to hell, right, one of the things that you want from outsiders is the ability to be able to imagine an alternative future. And I've always wondered whether the starting point of a conversation when we're talking to actors and people who are living through this is to say, you know, take Afghanistan. What don't you want in the next 10 years? You know, let's fast forward to 2030. What don't you want for your children? And I think that it's really important to, to humanize it and bring it down to people they care about. You know, one of the interesting things to me, Sanam, about the approach that you've taken, the argument that you've made in favor of including women more in peace processes, is that it just simply leads to better outcomes, right? That it's more effective. And I'm thinking of uh, the case of Yemen, where, if I'm not mistaken, you observe some of the mothers of detainees at work and how just how much they were able to achieve. If you take a case like Yemen, for example, the idea of releasing detainees, releasing prisoners, this was one of the big elements in one of the sort of negotiations and one of the agreements that it was meant to be a confidence building measure, right? So I'll release your prisoners, you release my prisoners, and the UN was meant to help negotiate that. Fast forward a few months, and the UN really has not been able to do very much at all. But the mothers of the detainees, there's a group of Yemeni women who are the mothers of detainees, they form themselves, they've released over 600 detainees. And this is, I think, again, this brings it back to me to various things. One is these women care because it's their kids and their sons and their husbands and whatever. They are able to talk at, within the local cultural context. They bring their own humanity to the story, right? You know, how do you say no to a mom? So, so they use their identity, but they're also of the people and, and of the context. And, you know, they're going to persist day in, day out. And, you know, you've made it an incredibly central part of your work and career now to bring together, to support those kind of women, not just in, in Yemen, but all over the world, through the organization that you founded, the International Civil Society Action Network. Tell us a little bit about what they do, what they mean to you. <laughs> Every time I think about this, it, it makes me uh, very emotional because wars bring out the worst in humanity and they bring out the best in humanity. And I, in the 25 years that I've been in this space, getting to know things that I sometimes wish I really didn't know, you know, about mm -hmm. what happens in rape camps and so forth. What's kept me going is that I've also gotten to know the best of humanity. And the women I work with are extraordinary. It's an incredible privilege. And I have so many of these stories. I have so many extraordinary, extraordinary women. And I just wish the world knew them. And I wish that the world was listening to them. I, th I think they should, be the, they should be the sounding board of how we do peace processes. So yeah, so I, I, it's kind of... Um, they're all, they're, they're all sitting here with me right now. It's like I just see them, their faces in front of me. It's clearly something which is just so much more than a, a job to you, Sanam. It's, it's your life's work to support them and to find a way to 
make their voices loud, that we hear them. You bring them together. Yeah. I'm wondering what those conversations are like, these Zoom calls that you have each week. Yeah. Under normal circumstances, we do an annual meeting and it's like a family gathering. It's like a sort of the tribe comes together. Now we do them on a weekly Zoom call and there are different things because you see the pain and the exhaustion in people's voices. Um, we have in the network, I have a colleague who's called Khadija Arfawi. She's Tunisian. Her son and her daughter-in-law were killed in, in the Istanbul nightclub bombing a few years ago. This happened while you know we were all together. I have my colleague Visaka Darmadasa, whose son went missing in Sri Lanka in 1998. And so it's a community where there's tremendous personal pain. And then there's this incredible courage because they've decided that they want to do something about and stop the violence. And so much of it is about everybody saying, I don't want what happened to me to happen to someone else. And that's, that's a really powerful kind of motivator for, for all of them, right? So, so, so that, that's something that we see each week in, in these conversations. But on top of it, what I love about this work and, and about these people is that you know, if I said to an average person, you know, Yemen, Somalia, Syria, the image that comes to people's minds is an image of war and gray and violence and anger and just awfulness, like hopelessness. But when we are all together, what I see is the color and the life and the laughter and the incredible humor and the ability to put on the music and dance, you know, and just kind of show how much more, actually, how much more peace is inherent to human nature than war is. And yet we've allowed like the odd psychopath to define how we understand Yemen or, or Syria or, you know, whichever of these conflicts we have. We, we've elevated the worst elements and we ignore the best elements and the majority element. I mean, do you think that explains why for you it's something which you connect on both intellectually and emotionally? Yes, yes. You know, so often in this field, we're told that, oh, we're having a technical solution to, and these are rational conversations. We're going to bring people in, you know, peace talks are sort of, there's meant to be a level of rationality. Like, there's nothing rational if people have been killing each other. There's a lot of emotion, whether that's anger or fear or existential, but you have to understand the emotional aspects of it. And you have to deal with that in the context of mediation. Because what you're trying to do is, take them from a place where they've used violence to a place where it's like, actually, both of you are going to survive. But it's not enough to say, now you hate each other, and we're going to put you in a political space, and you're going to have war by politics. It really needs to be a transformative thing of saying, you know what, you're Afghans, and nobody else in the world cares about Afghanistan as much as you do. Everybody else will come and use Afghanistan or Yemen or Syria. But you as Afghans have something far more in common with each other in terms of taking the country forward. And so can we get to that point? And I think that negotiations and mediation processes have to touch people in their heart to be able to get to their head. I, I don't I think, think that you start with a head and go to the heart. I think that's incredibly important. And I think you know, this issue about whether we're putting humanity at the center of mediation, you know, I think about my own work as well, so I'm in Myanmar and elsewhere, where I've probably been guilty too of treating peace as a kind of technical, concern, right, with a technical solution. And I'm kind of wondering whether you think that mediators in general just need to do a better job of being 
emotionally as well as intellectually intelligent. Definitely, definitely, definitely. I think we need to do that. And in country after country, when that emotional reality of the war has been brought to the negotiating spaces, it's made a significant difference in the quality and the trajectory of the talks, right? So, so for example, in Colombia, in the Colombia peace talks, they had delegations of victims, of people who had been victimized, you know, where their families had disappeared. Or they were brought to Cuba where the talks were happening to speak directly of their personal experiences to the guys or people sitting around the table negotiating, you know, from, from parties. Those experiences changed the way that those negotiators understood what they were doing and why they were doing it. So often, actually, the negotiators themselves aren't on the ground. You know, so often it's the leaders of a militia and they're living outside or they're living abroad or they have no skin in the game, right? And, and you need to bring the reality back. If you think about Yemen right now, who is hurting? Is it the Saudis? Is it the Americans? Is it the UAE? Is it, is it the Yemeni government? They're, they're sitting in a hotel in Riyadh. Who is paying for the war that these guys are fighting amongst themselves? It's Yemeni kids. It's Yemeni women and children and old men. So how dare we not have their voice? How dare we not have their representatives, people who have taken on the responsibility to protect? How dare we not have that voice at the peace talks? How dare we give the Saudi government and the Yemeni government, as I said, sitting in, in Riyadh, more say than my colleague Mona Lohman and her colleagues who are now doing you know, risking their lives to do COVID relief and risking their lives to give water to people and risking their lives to negotiate a ceasefire or some passage for, for sick people to get through. It's completely upside down. I mean, what is it you think that stops negotiators, mediators from listening to those people, the reality of those affected by war? <laughs> I, I can look at this in two different ways. So, so one is we can say, look, Peace and war is always, you know, in the hands of the military and political elite. They sit and they carve out pieces of land and they have a ceasefire, whatever. And this is such an old, this is such a 20th century version of war. Since the end of the Cold War, none of our wars have been like that, right? It's all of our wars have literally come into people's homes. You know, when you have the genocide in Rwanda and people are hacking each other because of their in-laws or from different ethnic groups, this is no longer about military political leadership. It's about community. It's a societal conflict. And I always find it really ironic that, you know, when I say we need to have more inclusive processes, and yes, it's more complicated to, to design them, let's say, I'm told that I'm being idealistic, or there's an assumption that, you know, it's this idealistic crazy lady who's come forward and, and is saying this stuff. I look at it, I'm like, I'm like, it would be so lovely to just think that the conflict has two sides to it. That's such an idealistic version of Yemen, Syria, Afghanistan, Cameroon, whatever war we're dealing with right now. And yet our systems keep replicating the same flawed process that doesn't work. So, you know, that's the definition of madness. What I think we should do is to say, as a global community, we should be saying, okay, we're going to be talking about responsibility sharing. There is a war. You guys, we need you at the table because you have been perpetrating the war. You're, you're being violent. So we definitely need to talk to you to stop it and figure out how we deal with you. But if you want to be part of this, then you have to recognize that you have a responsibility to bring water to people. You know, if you're going to be finance minister, how are you going to finance the re recovery and the reconstruction? So that shift from power sharing to responsibility sharing is one kind of mindset around these things. For you personally, 
I mean, your work now is about humanity and affirming life. And, you know, you began this interview by saying that your life ended when you left Iran. Do you feel that in some ways you've come full circle? Yes. I mean, obviously, because I created a new life and I have been incredibly privileged in the life that I have had since 1980 and onwards. And that's in a way, again, I think part of the reason why I do this work, because as I said at the beginning, the sense of privilege and responsibility comes in very strongly. I sit in my house in Washington, D.C. right now, and um, I don't have to worry about bombs dropping on my head. I can engage and I can be of use to people and help with an understanding of what they're going through. So it connects me back to my own sense of what I lost, but at the same time, it's also a recognition of the life that I did gain and the life that I have had, the education that I've been able to have and the access and, and just the comfort that I've had. So, so it goes in different ways, but it's a sense of saying, you do what you can. And my organization, you know, the acronym is I can, and we come back to that so often that am I doing what I can to make a difference or to help? It's as simple as that. Am I doing what I can? Well, that message of using your privilege to help others, I think, could not reflect any better the spirit of our times at the moment. Sanam Naragi Andalini, thank you for being my guest in the Mediator Studio. Thank you. That was Sanam Naragi Andalini in the Mediator Studio, a new Oslo Forum podcast brought to you by the Centre for Humanitarian Dialogue and the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. If you've liked what you've heard, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and please do recommend it to a friend. You can find other episodes at osloforum.org where you can read more about the forum itself. And if you have any questions about the podcast or about any of the issues raised, send them to me on Twitter at Adam Talks Peace. That's all from me, Adam Cooper. Thank you for listening.